All right, the book of Haggai, chapter 2, is where we are going to begin today in verse 1. As you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Haggai, chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares Yahweh. Work, for I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says Yahweh of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. The Lord adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. So in our first message from the book of Haggai last week, we were looking upon the necessity of prioritizing the Lord's house over our own house, houses, our own affairs. And really we're talking about you know, who, really is, who really is God in our lives. Is it our things? Is it our possessions? our safety? Is it our comforts? Or is it the Lord himself? And now, uh, oh, and let me remind you too, as I mentioned last week, that the book of Haggai is made up of four different messages, the longest ones in chapter one. Then we have this one now, in verses one through nine is, uh, is the next longest one. But it, these are delivered over a period of about three months. So you'll notice in chapter one and verse one, it's the sixth month, uh, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh comes to Haggai. And now, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of Yahweh comes. So about a month, a month and a half later, this message is brought. And in that, in that intervening month and a half, a lot has been happening. Do you remember from that message that, that Haggai uh, brought to the people, they, they were stirred up, they wanted to walk in obedience to the Lord, and they did so. They laid aside their own priorities, and they started contributing. We know this from the book of Ezra. Uh, we, in Ezra chapter 6, um, it mentions the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah ministering among the people and how they came, and they worked with a will, and they were going at it trying to rebuild this temple. And in a month and a half or so, they made a lot of progress. They made a lot of progress, apparently. There was opposition. If you look there in Ezra, you'll see some of the opposition that was coming from those around, particularly some of the agents of the, uh, the uh, king who uh, didn't like the fact that uh, the Israelites were on the, on the rise and that they were not the, the big poobahs that they thought they were. Here the Israelites have uh, the, the ear of the king and the blessing uh, from uh, him to go ahead with this work, and they didn't. They didn't. Uh, their opposition didn't like it, but everyone kept working at it. So, but a month and a half has gone by. Now, I was thinking about this when we purchased this building. Uh, there aren't too many of you here uh, that were here when we purchased the building, and it was fairly derelict, to say the least. And it took us about nine, ten months of hard labor. Yeah, pretty much, something like that, right? Anyway, most of a year 
uh, to get it habitable. And then we've continued to make improvements as we went along. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I have a picture in my office, if anybody's ever interested in seeing it, of the original building here. Uh, it doesn't have, didn't have the uh, porches on the sides. It didn't have the, the uh, narthex portion on the front there. The, the uh, second double door area there was the front door of the church, and there were stairs that went down to the street. Um, and it was brown, and uh, it's kind of a cute little building. Um, and none of that was back there, yeah. None of this, it, it was rather barren in 1941 uh, around it. But, you know, we, we're looking at this and thinking of all the, the work that was done, nine months, and it took us to, to finish it. Uh, the, uh, it was going to take them years to finish this. So in a month and a half, they didn't really get, I mean, they got stuff done. Foundation had been laid, but it just had been sitting there derelict. <clears throat> So they started building on the foundation. Um, I remember going to the eastern part of the country of Rwanda some years ago, and they're by the border of the Congo, and there were people that were worshiping there in, to, well, calling them a build, calling them a church build, calling it a church building is a stretch. There was a low uh, wall kind of a, I'm, I guess you would call it a footing, a little parapet, maybe a couple of feet high that went around in a couple of places. And that's all they had the money to do. They hadn't been able to finish it. So it was just this, a defined area by a short wall around with dirt floors and wooden benches. And the space inside there and, and out was full of people. But you look at that and think, here they are worshiping out here in the middle of nowhere, um, we have a building. <laughs> there's no walls, there's no roof, but we've got a building. Uh, I'm sure it, for some of them, though we didn't speak their language, uh, I'm sure for many of them they would look at that and go, well, it's not much, particularly in light of some of the other things that they had had before the genocide in Rwanda, uh, with many churches and so on, nice buildings and all of that. And all that was gone away. And they probably longed for those days. I know there were many days when we were working on the property here when we longed for it to be done um, and not have uh, all the construction debris and the, the, the mess that passed for landscaping around here, the jungle that it was, and all of that to be cleared away and everything to be made as you know, nice and comfortable as, as it is today. And yet, we've been here now as a church over 11 years. Uh, September uh, marked uh, when we got here, and I'm just trying to remember when the first service, first service was. I think it was towards the end of September or in the middle of September. And then uh, our first service in here was in December, so we're coming up on our 10th, no, 9th anniversary, I think, in this building, um, if I got my chronology right. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. We've labored long and hard, have we not? And yet, it wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if things were fuller? It wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to worry about the budget anymore? Uh, because we just had so many people, and just because everybody's uh, able to just give above and beyond um, more, you know, anything we could imagine. Wouldn't that be nice? We wonder, how are we, how are we doing in that, in that uh, coming alongside uh, the Lord's priorities and making them our own? That's a, that's a question to ask as we come into, into this uh, second message because in God's providence, as he looks at this, the people had a mind to work. They were willing to work. They were willing to give. They, they started off, but after a month and a half, of hard labor, I doubt not that the reality was setting in. You know, one of the things about starting churches, and my experience has been, that I call it the honeymoon period. 
There's a honeymoon period of when you all get started, everybody's got a vision, we're all excited. Wow, this is where we're gonna go. We're gonna start this new thing, it's gonna be great. And you get in there and you start having services and you start creating things and, 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 and building your own traditions and customs and, and you've, you've got your structures all put together and everybody's getting involved in it and they're all understanding how this works together. And this, and this is a great thing. And then about six months into it to a year, the bloom goes off the rose. When it becomes plain that this isn't about if you build it, they will come. It's about the hard work of doing the labor for the Lord day in and day out. And you might wonder, oh, yeah, we made some progress here, but we haven't made any progress over here. And, and I haven't even begun to start on that project yet. And I don't know when that's even gonna happen. And it can become discouraging. And I doubt not that the people of Israel here were getting a little bit discouraged. Uh, you know, uh, before I go too much further with this, uh, I think it's interesting that in God's providence, we land on this particular passage on Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday is a time when we look back upon what God did during the time particularly in the 16th century, but even in the time before, of course, 15th century and on into the 17th century. And we can see that what came out of that in many ways was glorious. And we all have a tendency to look back on the past and think of it as the glory days. And wouldn't it be great if we were there in those heady days of the Reformation? Wouldn't it be great if we were building the church like, like Luther and Calvin and Knox and those guys were building the church? And then their successors, <clears throat> as they took the gospel all over the world and they came to the United States and <clears throat> built, built uh, the, the churches here and you know the United States uh, be, having become uh, the greatest missionary sending nation ever uh, in the world's history and all those kinds of things. And, and we're a Christian nation and all that stuff that has to do with our heritage and everything else. We look back on that and we praise God for it. And then we look at where we are today and realize that we're no longer the biggest missionary sending agency. Uh, this nation is, uh, or we're an uh, agency, country. Um, we are surrounded by paganism everywhere we look. It's infiltrated every institution, including the church. And we look at that kind of thing as well as, you know, breakdowns of moral standards in society, the corruption in politics, tyranny, and so on on the rise. And we long for the former glories. Let me give you a little hint a little, little insight. The glory days weren't necessarily all that glorious because they were fighting the same corruption of men's hearts as we are. Looked different, and certainly there were times of, of at least to us, more apparent victories. But there's a reason why there's another uh, reform saying that goes along this line, reformed yet always reforming. It's, it's a never-ending task to stand firm for the cause of Jesus Christ and to call men and women to faithfulness with him. And if we think about the glories, do you think, do you think Israel, looking back on, in their mind's eye, looking back on the glory of Solomon's temple and the heyday of, Jeru of, of Israel and the, in, the influence that Solomon's David and then Solomon just exponentially took it all over the influence that was there the wealth that was there all those things is it any surprise that the lord looks at them and says hey guys anybody here around when solomon was around there were a few you remember what it was like <laughs> how's this one compare <laughs> and you know they're looking at it and we know from ezra too that they're looking at it and going oh man uh it, it tells us there that they looked upon it and wept for sorrow at what had been lost in terms of the glorious 
house of God that had been at Jerusalem but was destroyed. Well, I think what the Lord is trying to get at here is not, is not uh, that we want to have this big glorious thing that's going on, that our whole goal is to have this visible uh, uh, presence in a community that says, look how beautiful it is, how wonderful that is. You know, a lot of folks in the community here really appreciated so much all the work that was done here to turn this place from an eyesore into what it is today. Um, but, dear friends, if all we've got is a nice-looking building, we've missed the point. Because the point that, that Haggai is bringing out under the Lord's inspiration is that it's the Lord's presence that's the thing. We could be meeting in a hovel here, but if God is present in it, it will be glorious. That's not to say we don't take care of this as good stewards. Absolutely, we want it to look nice. But we ought to be more concerned that God is here, that God is present among us, and not get caught up in the temporal things. In, in verses 1 through 3 of this passage, <clears throat> just as the... Uh, uh, the Israelites here are looking at all of these things. They're, people are remembering. They're remembering what it was. There are some old guys there that were weeping because they remember what it was and that this is just a, fair, a faint shadow of the glories. And it, of course, it wasn't even finished yet. <clears throat> and they're probably thinking, what's the, even the point? Why should we keep at it? They're remembering that former glory. Uh, now it may seem like, well, you know, we might as well paint Ichabod over the, the door here because it feels like the glory has departed. Certainly, the Lord's presence is going to be, we, we know already, that he's going to fill this temple again with his glory as an evidence of his presence with his people. But don't get hung up on the former glories. Don't get hung up on them. We see this, you know, how do you see it? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You know, we look at what we're doing and sure, it looks nice to us, particularly as we, if you ever go back and look at the pictures and see what it was, it looks pretty great. And we're thankful for it. But compared to what a lot of other people do in this world, as far as churches and all that goes, well, this is, we're kind of small potatoes. Okay, so... Small potatoes can taste good too. Oh. It's just a reality that we think about and long for greater glories than we presently have. And we get hung up on that. But the Lord has something else to say to them in verses 4 and 5. He encourages them to labor for the present glory of God's house. You know, <clears throat> we can think about what things used to be all we want to, but we live here and now. We need to be concerned about what God has called us to do now and not judge our works uh, or both in terms of quality and quantity or even the list of what should be done as to uh, what was always done before. I, I think all of us are familiar with the danger of always in a company or in an organization always saying, well, in the past, we've always done it this way. We've always done it that way. So-and-so always did it this way. It's like, oh, that's, that's deadly. So-and-so isn't here anymore. The people that we, it's like, well, we used to have this program where we did this, that, and the other for the kids or for the choir or for da da or whatever it is. And we, and we need to have that again. It's like, well, Why? I mean, sure, if you've got people to populate it and run it and have a burden for it and take it on, sure. But just because we've done something in the past doesn't mean that it has to be sustained at all costs, no matter what happens, beyond the, the bare things that the Lord says to us regarding his worship, which are ongoing regardless. But all the extra stuff that we put on to, that we like, 
yeah, it's great while it lasts. And if you can keep it up, great. If it, as long as it's glorifying God, fulfilling uh, his purposes and edifying one another, wonderful. But if it gets to where it's more of a burden to keep it up, well then, okay, drop it. That's just a, a, not just in the church, but even just in a business model, the same thing. Uh, quit pouring you know, money and effort into something that is just holding you back. Uh, a smart business won't do that. Well, in the church, we need to kind of have the same approach. The Lord is here now among us now. There's things for us to do now. Let's look at the situation now that's around us and be strong in that work. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Do you, did you notice how many times it says um, to be strong? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. So what's he talking about here? The word, the word strong has the idea of... Um, yeah, I mean, it can, it can speak to physical strength, right? To, to prevail upon something. And I think that element is here. It also encourages... Uh, speaks to devotion and, and confidence in the work. You know, we're a small congregation. There's a lot of work to do. We can get weary in doing well. It's very easy for that to happen. But let us not grow weary in doing well. Let us be strong in the labors that the Lord has for us. In service to one another, in, work, in coming to worship, in, in sacrificial giving to one another and to the work of the church, to service around uh, the building, to... Uh, outreach opportunities that we have in the community. We need to be strong in those things. We have some confidence in it, not worry about, oh, well, we're not very big. We're not very glorious. We're not very whatever. We're the Lord's people. He's the king of all. The, the, the silver and the gold are his. He's going to take care of all that. What he orders, he'll pay for. We just need to be strong in the labors to which uh, he has called us. And then notice at the end of verse Verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. We'll talk about that more in a second, but I'm going to focus on that. The last two words, fear not. Fear not. You can see that how that complements that idea of being strong and confident. But take hold on, devote yourself to the work, and do it without fear. You know, when we are tested and tried, whether it's by physical affliction by setbacks of one kind or the other, it can be easy to start uh, having the idea, oh, you know, uh, if I go outside my door, I might get eaten by a bear. You know, think of the Proverbs there, you know, that the, the sluggard sits around and goes, oh, well, you know, there's a, there's a lion outside. I might get hurt if I go outside, so I better stay inside here. It's kind of the spirit of this age, is it not? There's, there's dangers out there, so we better all just stay home. We better all just do our own thing. And, and just, it's like, you know, God has called us to do stuff, people. Let us be bold and confident, wise, absolutely. But let us boldly and fearlessly and with strength go out and do the labor that God calls us to do. To this morning in Sunday school, we were looking at a little bit of uh, Martin Luther's ministry, particularly his emphasis upon the doctrine of, the justica of justification by faith. But Luther, uh, like many others uh, throughout the course of church history, labored in a time when such things as the plague uh, were a, a not infrequent thing. And his basic attitude was, is I'm going to go keep ministering and the Lord will protect me. If he wants to take me home, he will. I'll take what precautions I can, but... I'm going to go serve the Lord and do what he needs to do, what I need to do. And you know what? We need to do the same. Amen. The church, whatever, if, if, it's, not, if it's not a physical uh, uh, affliction that's out there, uh, it'll be something else, a political affliction, uh, some other kind of oppression that comes upon uh, the church of Jesus Christ as it has throughout the centuries political, religious uh, persecution, political persecution, uh, uh, calamities of all kinds. 
The church cannot be content with staying behind the four walls of this building and letting the rest of the world uh, go into perdition and judgment without doing what we are here to do, which is to speak truth into this fallen world. So let us be bold in it, be strong in it, and not just with this bravado, right, that this is all about, look how wise we are, look how strong we are, look how wealthy we are, or whatever. But really, that fearlessness is, is grounded upon the fact that God is present. See that in the end of verse 5? My spirit remains in your midst. Think about those words for a minute, folks. Of course, often in this day and age, uh, among uh, many in evangelical churches, they have the mistaken idea that the Holy Spirit's only active in the New Testament. This is, just think about the historical context in which that simple statement is made. We know if we go back and do a little reading, we can see pretty clearly the Spirit of God was hmm, uh, at the beginning of creation, hovering over the face of the waters. So he's been active since day one. But beyond that, he was present over and over again, mentioned with the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness and guided them by, um, the New Testament even tells us that the Spirit of God guided them through the wilderness. The Spirit of God came upon people to enable them to work, enable them to understand how to do various things and so on. But what has happened since then, since those glory days? Well, you had the book of Judges, for one thing. You had the book of, actually even before that, the book of Joshua, where the people of God blew it time and time again and going against their enemies, uh, either making false alliances with some or, or running scared before others or disobeying in the way they went about it with somebody else. And then judges, you know, they're going into the full idolatry mode. And then you get into the kings, and some in Judah were good, and some were bad, and in Israel they were all bad, and they're all continuing on the idolatry until eventually they are carried away into captivity. So when you think about those former days and think about, for them, what were they thinking about? Where... Where has God been? Does God even care about us anymore? The temple's gone. It's been leveled. When God says to them, these returning exiles who are rebuilding that temple, a temple which is not finished yet, and he says, my spirit remains in the midst of you. What should that have said to them? What should it say to us? That God does not care about a building. A physical building has absolutely nothing to do with his presence. He chooses to use buildings and has, and did since one reason why we build dedicated buildings this way. Um, as a visible testimony to the world around. That's it. What matters to the church is if God is there in the midst or not. Because if he's not here, beloved, then all this is is a nice-looking, empty mausoleum full of dead people. Us. If Christ is not with us and his spirit is not dwelling with us. The Lord says to them, where's your hope lie? Not in these walls. That's exactly what he's saying there. You're looking around, you're saying, oh man, this is a mess. There is no way we're ever going to return to this. Oh, how, oh, this is just awful. And he says, I'm with you. Get to it. Labor, do the labor. Be strong and fearless because God is with you. Take a look, if you will, at Isaiah chapter 63. Beginning at verse 11, it's speaking about um, the Lord uh, ministering to his people and, and his promises to them. 
that he was their God, they were his people, but they rebelled, it says in verse 10, and grieved his Holy Spirit. There's his spirit again. He turned out to be their enemy and fought, himself fought against them. But look at verse 11. Because remember, uh, God has now brought, uh, uh, you know, the people out of captivity. Isaiah is writing during the times of the captivity. Then he, that is Yahweh, remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And now the Lord says to them, through Haggai, after they have returned from exile and are building this again. He's drawing back to this thread here that goes back to the former thread, back, all the way back to Moses. My spirit is in your midst. I am not abandoning you. Beloved, our confidence in our labor comes from the fact that God is here. If he is not here, then we perish. But if he is here, no matter how small our ministry might appear to be to the world or to our own eyes, no matter how inadequate, if God is in the midst of it, he will accomplish everything that he sets out to accomplish. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will accomplish it. Let us then be encouraged and not grow weary in doing well. Because we are not just working for this time and place, are we? The Lord certainly is not. The Lord's the one who puts eternity in our hearts. He is working for far beyond just this momentary time when we experience affliction and oppression and difficulty and struggle. And so back in Haggai, Haggai reminds them, uh, as I should say the Lord does through Haggai, as he, as, you know, it's kind of interesting that this sermon of Haggai's is really all one, mostly one big quote of what the Lord is saying directly to his people. So in verse six, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Oh, by the way, did you notice something starting at verse six? <clears throat> Up to this point um, in the, or speaking about the former glory and thinking about, you know, the necessity of being strong now, it's, it's, God's covenant name is used, Yahweh. But beginning at verse 6, did you notice how many times over and over and over again it said, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts? In fact, I'm pretty sure that from 6 on to the end of this section, he doesn't use just his name Yahweh by itself. It's always Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. Did you notice that as I read through? Did you... Did you have a little question mark go bing in your head going, I wonder why he's doing that? Well, if so, I'm glad you did because I intend to answer that question for you. Can you and I claim this town for Jesus Christ on our own strength? The answer would be no. We can't. As No matter how organized we are, no matter how many programs we have, no matter how hard I preach, no matter how often you guys go out and witness to your neighbors and your co-workers and your families about the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are doing this on our own strength, we will utterly fail. This, from verses 6 through 9, when you see Yahweh of hosts, that is a battle name. That is a battle name. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. But the battle is God's, not ours. And he is the one who commands hosts. He, even 
I'm going to speak as a fool here. He is certainly sufficient on his own without hosts. But he chooses to use hosts. Certainly there's the hosts of his angels, but there's the hosts of his people as well. Do you remember the prophet Elijah being so discouraged after, after the incident with the prophets of Baal? Fled from Jezebel's presence, was terrified that she was going to kill him, goes out in the desert, and he's like, I alone am left. Had a little pity party out there in the desert. And sometimes we can feel like we look around and we see apostasy, we see wickedness, we see um, error and heresy and, and divisions and all those other things that come up to thwart us and discourage us. And we go in our little corner and think, oh, I'm saying this to myself because my wife and I were talking about today. There are times when you just, I just I want to quit. She said, what do you want to quit? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't even got to that point. I don't know. Just, you know, I have my little pity party. Things aren't going well. Things are a struggle. The Lord told Elijah, you're not alone. There's still 7,000 people out there that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So <laughs> quit your whining and get back and do what you need to do. He's, the, he's, the, he's Yahweh, the I am, the one who never fails, the one who always is, the one who always was, the one who always will be. That's what his name means. And he is the one who marches at the head of his host to accomplish his will. And he will do it, friends. And he'll do it among us. Let us be numbered among his hosts to be used as he desires, to be sent into whatever foray he desires, uh, into whatever battle he desires, so that we may lift up his name with courage and joy and know that he is the one who is going to accomplish all his holy will. Where he says there, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. When I say here, and you've got those of you who've got it in your notes there, that you should anticipate the future glory of God's house, I'm not necessarily, I'm not at all speaking of hey, we're going to tear down this and build something bigger. You know, God willing, it would be wonderful if we had to expand out there and add more seatings and seating areas and all of that kind of stuff. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be awesome. That'd be wonderful. And maybe we can anticipate that as the Lord um, uh, continues to work among us in his good time. But if, if not, it's, we're, we're not just consumed with, or we should not be just consumed with getting more people here having a bigger budget here, or doing some other thing by which people judge success on human terms. God's glory is not measured that way. He doesn't need... Okay, to my treasurer, swallow hard here. Because after we just talked about this last week and you've got in your hands the nature of our budget and where it is right now, <clears throat> I'm going to say it, okay? You know where I'm going with this. He doesn't need our money. He requires it of us to demonstrate our devotion to him because it's something tangible. It means something to us. And so it, that adds value to it as far as he's concerned. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the silver and gold are his. And this is a glory that is going to shake foundations. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, there is going to be a time when the, when the temple is filled and that there's going to be a shaking there. So there's an inner, you know, an immediate fulfillment of this shaking. But there is a, a future here. In the prophet uh, Joel, chapter 3, and verse 16, we read, Yahweh also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and earth will shake, but Yahweh will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah utters the prayer, Oh, that you would come down and rend the heavens 
Certainly that would be our prayer. That the Lord would come and among us and through us would shake the foundations of the, the powers that be that are devoted unto Satan and put down the kingdom of the adversary and put in its place the kingdom of the Most High God. Now again, I think uh, the Lord Jesus spoke to this to, the, to uh, Pilate, did he not? When Pilate says, well, are you a king then? And Jesus said, well, yeah, you said it. But he, what did Jesus say? My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, I'd call all these legions in and you would be toast, Pilate. <laughs> but he was erecting a spiritual heavenly kingdom that would truly shake the foundations of all things, the foundations of our souls that uproots us from our dependence upon ourselves and our own righteousness and humbles us and, all, and those from every nation of the earth before the king the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shaking is ongoing to this day because God is still present among his people. And this glory not only shakes foundations, but as we see in verse seven there, I will fill this house with my glory, a glory that fills God's temples. <clears throat> now, with Solomon and with what would happen here with Zerubbabel's temple, there is going to be a filling that the Lord does, a visible thing that he does there at that time. Can you think of anything from the New Testament that rivals that, that would suggest something that the Lord's work is still ongoing in filling of his temples? The book of Acts comes to mind. Where the Spirit of God comes upon the people as they are gathered together. And indwells them in a fresh and mighty way. And they go out and do signs and wonders and other things as they begin to establish the visible church of Jesus Christ. And that glory, beloved, is still <clears throat> something within us as the Lord Jesus Christ dwells with us by his spirit. For he has not left us to our own devices, but he continues to dwell us dwell within us and minister to our hearts and souls by his spirit, because his spirit is still in the midst. Take a look, if you will, at Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12. <clears throat> Remember, he's been talking about shaking foundations. The Lord's the Lord, uh, beginning with Israel, the nation of Israel, the, Lord, the Lord's been shaking things up for a long time. And that shaking is going to be, uh, is an ongoing thing. But not everything is, uh, is uh, subject to being uh, shaken, i.e. Uh, broken down, the foundation's unsettled. It's, a, it's kind of, what the Lord's talking about is, in construction terms, Demo day. Demolishing the strongholds so that something permanent can be erected in its place. And look at verse 12, uh, uh, sorry, verse uh, 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Right, this is speaking about Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, the old foundations of the covenant of works shattered and raided, raised in its place an, uh, an unshakable kingdom of God's erecting 
and all of these other things of Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, those are but shadows of the things to come. Help us be thinking in the right way so that when the reality comes, we may know by God's grace that it is there. This glory that God fills his temples with is he himself. We read that in the book of Revelation, do we not? In chapter 21. And there in those verses, uh, I saw no temple in the city, verse 22. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What did Haggai say? Or what did the Lord say through Haggai? I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with my glory. God's presence is the key. And in his presence, there is glory. And where he is, his banner will be lifted up and he will draw all to him that he calls from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, every time. An innumerable host of those who now, who will for eternity live um, in a state of blessed communion with their creator. That is what we must anticipate, and that is what Haggai is, is foretelling here uh, as the Lord speaks through him. This glory exceeds our imagination. The glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Which, again, if they looked up, uh, think about uh, Julian, poor Julian, with this addition project that should have been so simple and so quick. And here it is months and months and months and months later. And um, we were teasing him the other day about the kind of the, you know, the foxholes that are all dug around and the uneven ground and everything else. And, and he's talking about, you know, the inside and the work that's been done there. It's still kind of dirty and there's paint spots on the floor and there's other things. It's like, oh, you know, how can this be more glorious? How can this be better? Is this ever going to be clean? Is this ever going to be put together? Is it ever going to be orderly? And I'm sure the people were looking at that temple that they were trying to build there and going, oh man, I don't know how Solomon did this thing. Because what we're doing, this is a shambles. This is miserable. And the Lord's promise is, the glory here is going to be far greater. Do you know what Zerubbabel's temple would become? Anybody know? Herod's temple. Herod is the one who remodeled it, trying to get back to the glories of Solomon on the outside. What was going on in that temple during Jesus' day? Money changers, corruption, uh, false religion of works, all those other kinds of things that were there. What glory entered that, that temple? Jesus Christ himself stepped into that courtyard, walked on those steps, taught people there. God's glory indeed filled that temple far greater than smoke and, smoke and lights and thunderings and all of that. And when Jesus Christ walked this earth, he shook the foundations of the adversary's kingdom. His glory exceeds your imagination. And it is because of that, because of who is at the heart of that glory, that as we read there in the last verse, verse nine, in this place, I will give peace. The Prince of Peace walked, he would eventually walk in those temple courts. The Lord has declared it. In Isaiah 26, 3, we read these words. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Beloved, our peace is not dependent on our ability to do the work. Praise the Lord that that's true. Because our, no matter how willing we are, the strength of our arm will fail us. 
To have genuine peace with God is not something that we can concoct on our own. He must do it. And we read that there. If that's not the gospel in the Old Testament, I don't know what is. Our peace is stayed. We have our peace because we are fixed upon our Lord. And the Lord Jesus, in his earthly ministry, follows up on that thought and, and shows the fullness of how that is brought about. In John 14, a verse that I'm sure many of you know. Peace I leave with you, he, said, he told the disciples. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let us not look at the outward trappings of our efforts, but rather let us look to the one uh, who has promised to be in our midst, whose spirit is still among us, and to trust in his Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is the source of our peace, a peace that passes all understanding as we are resting in his finished work to deliver us. So I don't know. Do our small numbers discourage you sometimes? Maybe understandable, but don't let that discourage you. you know, we, we have a building here that's a blessing. There are many churches around. You know, the, the, uh, my, the first church that I helped to start, which is still going down in Scappoose, Oregon, they still don't have a building. But are they any less the church of God than we are? No. Because God is present among them. You know, when God is present in his house, and we are his temples as well, so I'm not speaking not just about this building, but in our own hearts. When God is present, uh, there's not going to be any lacking for glory, for showing forth the perfections of God. So walk in obedience to him. Trust in Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh, but in the precious promises of God. His glory will show itself in your life and in our midst as a body in his good time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this encouragement that your spirit remains in our midst. Lord, we depend upon this. Let us not look to any other source of power or peace or glory, but you alone. And be fearless and strong in the labors to which you have called us so that men will humble themselves before you, cry out for mercy, and you give them peace through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his